My agent called, he said he got some interest in my strip. I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it. I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot. I even got a famous classic case of writer's block. Get it out of my head. Get it out of my head. Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Today is episode 666 of the On the Page podcast. So my guest today is the writer of the classic film, The Omen, David Seltzer. Thank you so much for being here, David. Thank you for having me. I am I am beyond thrilled that I'm going to try to stop grinning like an idiot, but I, I can't say that's for sure. David's other writing credits include the uncredited rewrite of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, as well as the screenplays for Six Weeks, My Giant, Dragonfly, and Bird on a Wire, starring Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn. He wrote and directed Lucas, starring Winona Ryder, Punchline with Tom Hanks and Sally Field, and Shining Through with Melanie Griffith and Michael Douglas, among many others. Um, so I'm really, really, really honored to have you here today. And uh, and this this podcast is all about process. This is all about a writer's process. And I'm very interested in what launched you into coming up with The Omen. And let's just take it from there, because I'm sure so many people would be just thrilled to wake up one day and say, I've got an idea. I don't think it progressed like that, but I'm interested in in how The Omen came to be. Okay. You have to back up a little bit, or at least I have to back up a little bit. My background was in documentaries, um, and it was the most exciting part of my life because every day I was inputting information. I was learning things every single day. I worked for the David Walper Company. I worked for National Geographic. I worked for Jacques Cousteau, and I felt that I was becoming a person um, whose brain would amount to something. And um, I did a documentary called, um, but it it, it it wasn't paying much. You know, I had a couple of kids, a couple of automobiles, and I was thinking, I've got to do something else. This documentary work is not going to sustain me. I did a documentary called The Hellstrom Chronicle, which won an Academy Award, won a Palme d'Or. It was a bunch of insect footage that one of our cameramen brought back from Africa. And I had the idea that we would invent a fake scientist named Nils Hellstrom. And for that, I called my college roommate, Larry Pressman, who has since become an actor. And he would play a mad scientist whose theory was that man was so despoiling the planet that the only thing that was going to be left would be the one thing he can't kill, and that is the insect. And in fact, at that time, this was, you know, really ahead of its time. But in fact, insects can adapt quicker than viruses can to poison. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the atomic testing sites 
of what were called atomic bombs in those days, where everything was killed, there were beetles left crawling around. So at any rate, it was the, you know, it was the conceit of the show, the supposition that he's warning us about all these insects. And it did so well. I was so shocked. Um, I had no interest, by the way, in going to the Academy Awards when it was nominated, nor to, you know, nor to France when it was nominated. I just, you know, and, and I was so shocked that it once, and I thought, it's the first time I ever, ever put words in a person's mouth on film. I thought, this is not difficult. And people, <laughs> lay, people make lots of money doing this. So um, I started telling the people I worked for in documentaries, Mel Stewart was one of my bosses, David Walper, very accomplished documentarians that I wanted to do. Could they introduce me to someone who could pay me to write a screenplay that I really wanted to be a writer? And of course, I wasn't going to take six months or three months or whatever it took without salary. I couldn't afford it. And um, they decided on their own that they were going to go into the world of theatrical films. I am getting there with the omen. Oh, <clears throat> take your time. Um, but um, at any rate, they bought Roald Dahl's book. They bought the rights to, to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. They, um, they then proceeded to hire Leslie Brickus and Tony Newley to write the music. And they were off doing their own thing, and they went to Germany, and they had bought their ticket into the real film business by having Roald Dahl to write a screenplay. Now, I did just do a rewrite. <laughs> that was the, my golden ticket. Roald Dahl showed up with 14 pages. He was a famous rageaholic, and he showed up with 14 pages. They were already doing the musical number. Um, and they said, that's not a screenplay. And he said, well, follow the arrows, you've got the book. And said, no, we paid you a lot of money to do a screenplay. Basically, he walked out. And um, they called me and said, can you really write a screenplay? And I said, yes, you bet. <laughs> said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you on a plane, not first class. We're going to put you in a hotel, not first class. We're not going to give you credit for writing this. And I said, boy, this deal sounds great. We're basically going to play, pay your car fare, and we're going to make your first movie. And I said, well, that sounds fine to me. And I have to back up again in saying that when I was doing documentaries, the last one I did was on the life of Robert Kennedy. And I had manipulated some footage, which is the cardinal sin, in doing an a biographical documentary. When Bobby Kennedy sang, he sounded like he was crying. And when he sang Jingle Bells, before Jack died at this little party he'd give um, at the Department of Justice for underprivileged kids, he's saying, Jingle Bells, Jingle, it sounded like he was crying. So I put that after Jack died, and I got caught at it. Uh, be some Swedish photographer who had taken that, but at any rate, Mel Stewart, who is now directing the director of Willy Wonka, told me that it was time for me to get out of documentaries. That if I was going to mess around with the footage, I should go off and do lassie movies, make up sign of some kind of, I cannot use my imagination in recreating history. So I have to tell you, I walked down to the set, and there was Tony Newley singing, Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. And I looked at Mel and I thought, aha. 
Here we go. I'm now using my imagination. So at any rate. Call your bluff. Call your bluff. So at any rate, I did. I wrote the whole bloody thing, really. Um, And it was fine that I didn't get credit. No one was supposed to know, but everyone knew. You know, it's on my IMDb. It's everywhere that I wrote it. I have so, to I have to stop for a second because even though I asked about the omen, I am a huge fan of Willy Wonka. It had an, a huge impact on me as a kid, and I used to actually show um, a clip in my screenwriting class from it. Um, and we had a shortcut that we called the Gobstopper moment. <laughs> um, you created uh, the the character of Slugworth. Yes was an antagonist that was testing the kids that actually created more of a story for this, which is, which is, uh, Hey kid, if you give me the, the, this gobstopper, I'll make you rich. Right. And they're not supposed to do, they're not not supposed to violate confidence. Um, and only Charlie at the end gives his back. And in that one gobstopper moment of giving it back, he gets all the candy. So, so we had a shortcut in my classes for years called the gobstopper moment. Like, what's your gobstopper moment? That moment of truth. Oh so I have to God. say, it had a huge impact. That is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> I know we were starting with the omen, but let me do one more story about yeah, this. Go for it. I, I was, I worked day and night. Um, I'd never written a screenplay. I didn't even know what Slugworth was whispering to the kids for a long time. I didn't know anything about structure, which is part of the beauty of this. It's and then, and then, and then. Mm-hmm. It's all episodic. It's this and this and that. I knew that there was something that had to string it together. And eventually I came up with the fact that Charlie was going to actually be the one to show conscience, to show honor, therefore. So at the very end of the movie, I mean, I, I was awake for like two months, didn't sleep, writing that script. Um, I went home, I had a cabin on a lake in Maine, and I just went there to just collapse. And it was very remote. There was only one phone. Um, it was tacked to a tree. It was for the fire department. But it rang. And it was Mel Stewart in Munich. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? He said, we're, we're, we're on the set. We're on the set. What is this? At the end of it, they go up, they go up in the Wonka Vader, and he says, you've got everything you ever wanted. And, and Charlie says, yay, that's the end of this movie. Yay. You call yourself a writer? I said, no, that's the book. Right. That was the ending in the book. I didn't know I was supposed to do something. He said, well, you've got to do something. We cannot end this movie on yay. So I said, well, how long do I have? And he said, um, we're on the set. It's like $10,000 an hour. You've got five minutes. So I thought, oh, God. Um, So I put the phone down. I walked out. I looked at the lake, and I thought, what am I going to do? Um, It's a fable. It's a fairy tale. It's a children's story. How do children's stories end? I can't do that. They all lived happily ever. That doesn't work. Um, But that's all I could come up with. So I got back on the phone. I said, okay, Mel, here's the deal. They go up in the Wonka Vader. He tells Charlie that he can move his whole family into the chocolate factory. The chocolate factory is his to own and do with what he wants. And Charlie goes, yay. And then Willie says, but Charlie, you do know what happened to the little boy who got everything he ever wanted, don't you? And Charlie fearfully says, no, what? And he says, he lived happily ever after. 
So there's this long beat on the phone. I'm thinking, there goes my career as a screenwriter. And Mel says, he, he uses a word I'm not allowed to use here. He said, blanking, fantastic. <laughs> Talk to Jean. Tell that to Jean. Jean wow. Wow. <laughs> Jean said the same thing. And, and then I hung up and looked at this lake and thought, what on earth has just happened? But what happened was the most amazing movie. <laughs> and I stole from everybody who ever wrote the end of a children's story. And it bloody worked. But I loved, I loved that. What a Great story. I've, I've never gotten chills on this podcast. There is a first time for everything. It took 667. Well, it took wow. 666 to get there. Um, so anyways, how did you get from Willy Wonka to The Omen? Well, it was very practical. And now I know why I started with documentaries. Um, I did. They produced my first movie, which was a small movie. It didn't do much. It was called One is a Lonely Number. Starred Trish Vanderveer and Who Knows Who, which is a movie that came and went. And then I was without work. Uh, didn't have an agent. Didn't know how to get one. I was back doing documentaries for Cousteau. And um, somebody called me who, who I had actually borrowed some money from. And he said, hey, I know what I want you to do for me. And I said, I really can't pay you right now. Um, he said, well... Let's just, let's, we, let's say I forgive that. Have you seen The Exorcist? I said, yeah. And he said, well, I want one of those. I want a movie like that. <laughs> Get me The Exorcist. I said, I don't do movies like that. I don't believe in the devil. This is very hard for me. And I actually, at that time, I had done The Other Side of the Mountain, I think, about Jill Kinmont, the skier. Anyway, um, I saw myself as a sensitive writer, as a sensitive person, as a person who hurt on the inside and wanted to help people to elevate the quality of their lives in some way. And I thought, this is, this is, I don't want to write about the devil. Plus, I won't learn anything. It was my ethic because I had come out of documentaries where there was not a day when I didn't learn something. I tried to apply that to my theatrical movie writing as well that if i can't learn something if i can't research something and learn i don't want to do it but i thought well i've never really read a bible um i come from a fundamental old country jewish family there is no devil in that religion um it's real you know you don't even say stuff like that um i love the, i love the streaming show on orthodox by the way that was sort of my family i don't know if you saw it i haven't it, seen it yet oh, see it, see it, see it. it's so okay. good at any rate i thought okay i haven't read bible i haven't read a bible i started reading i got completely hooked <clears throat> not on although i did fall in love with jesus tell you the truth if he were on a street corner today preaching love i'd bring him a Starbucks in the morning, you know. He was absolutely, really in defiance of the wrathful God who, who absolutely wiped the planet clean of living things a couple of times to start over because men were so vile and cruel and, and dishonorable. Jesus was not his father's son at all. He was something else altogether. But at any rate, the characters, the mythology, the arcs, the impossibility of it all, and mostly because... They keep a straight face. You start believing this stuff. 
Well, the thing about the Bible is that most people don't realize it was written at a time when there were only a few literate men. And studying the Bible meant copying the Bible. That's how it was distributed. Single men sitting alone in a room, and every one of them embellished it. I had 14 different versions of the Bible and of the books that I was looking at. Oh, wait a second. He was never walking on this water last time. You know, so they were all writers. There was a writer's room over the centuries going, how about, how about, let's do that, let's do that. And all these amazing stories. And I had just seen Jaws, and I thought, well, fish don't eat boats, but everybody believed it when they saw it on the screen. I'm just going to say there was a devil, and the devil was going to have a child. There was the beast, the Antichrist. And I had all these interpretive texts um, about what everything in the Bible meant. And one of them said that there's a passage in, in Revelations, uh, in Revelation, that um, the unholy one, the son, the Antichrist, will arise from the eternal sea. And the eternal sea was interpreted as the sea of turmoil and revolution, of war and politics. I said, okay, his kid will come into a political family. How does that happen? And then I saw that he who hath wisdom know the number of the beast. It is a human number, 666. And I thought, okay, I'm going to put that on a calendar. Six months, six days, six hours, and I was on a roll. So it, it came together very quickly, scary quickly. I think I did that screenplay in five weeks. I didn't know what I had, and I sent it to my friend, and uh, I didn't hear back, and I called, and I said, what did you think? He said, well, I told you I wanted The Exorcist. I said, yeah. He said, this is better. <laughs> I was very young. It was all so easy then. It really was. I don't so, know if, uh, if reading, you know, several copies of the Bible is that easy. So uh, it sounds like it was rather earned. So. Well, thank you. I can bore anyone to death on the subject of the Bible. Unbelievable. Um, I, think Unbelievable. I think it's just amazing. There's more material. By the way, I refuse to do another one. Uh -huh. I've lived my life turning down every opportunity to make money that I could possibly find. And I regret that. But I had done it. I had done it. I had learned what I needed to learn. I had to move on. And so they made five sequels of it. And everybody got planes and ranches. And, and I, I didn't. <laughs> now you have said, though, if you were writing the sequel, you'd pick up right where the first one left off, right? You've done your homework, my dear. <laughs> yes. You know, it's interesting that at the very end of The Omen, it ends in a cemetery, the little boy holding the hand, a man turns out to be the President of the United States. He's on his way to the White House. Mm -hmm. 666 Fifth Avenue. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> I mean, was I on to something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello, Jared, Jared, do you hear me? I, you know, I, I wasn't going to name names, but yeah, I was kind of wondering about, you know, let's say you started the sequels then and we're up to the present day. I mean, there's, there is some stuff. Does it make you ever want to, to do an omen for right now and just be like, hey. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I would like to look under Jared's hair. Oh, my God. 
Nobody write me. I don't want to hear from you. Okay. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> now, Richard Donner, um, who went on to do Superman and Lethal Weapon, um, you had talked about a certain grounding that came into the omen after he came along that you liked and respected and I, I, I think is part of the magic. Absolutely. Um, of all the screenplays I've written, which I think are pretty good, the only one that was better as a movie was The Omen. Hmm. Dick did that. And as a matter of fact, they remade my script in 2006, same script, but with Liev Shriver, with a director who was, anyway, just shows you what the magic of a director is and of an actor and an editor because it was a pile of junk, but it was the same, <laughs> same script. Um, there were a couple of things that I had written in the original script that were not of the real world. And Dick was so, one of the things that excited about him was that it took um, mythology from the ages and contemporized it and put the heart of evil in a smiling, innocent child in a family that you recognized as people like you, which made it all the more horrifying. I had, for instance, in the graveyard, the scene where the dogs attack Gregory Peck, um, animals with cloven, they looked like people, they were wearing capes, but the footprints they left were cloven hooves. And Dick said, eh, eh. Uh -uh. Once, once they know you are blanking with them, yeah. um, then it, then they sit back. They're not invested. If, if you keep them going with the, even with the, the, the killings that you've described, it's only when they reach a critical mass that the audience becomes believers, even ahead of the people on the screen or at the same time, there's something bigger going on here. So every little piece of it that was fanciful and an attempt to spook the audience by doing something from the netherworld, the underworld, the devil's world, the, you know, the world of biblical canon. He said, so long as we could walk into a room and recognize the people as real, then I realized, of course, this is what I want to do. This is the documentary of this story. And originally, Charles Bronson was supposed to star in it, not Gregory Peck. And there was a stuntman um, who was going to be the director. And I went on a scouting trip kind of around the world, uh, looking for locations with them. And I knew that we were making a B movie. Mm -hmm. uh, this was before Donna was a director. And when it all fell apart and we had to reconstitute it, constitute it, and Dick came aboard and Gregory Peck came aboard, I realized that every time you cut away to Gregory Peck, you believe this story. Sure. Wouldn't have been the same with Charles Bronson. So he was the grounding. And actually, I saw that in the Bible, too. The listener of whatever story is being told is on the page as well, usually. The Bible is not just speaking it is speaking to, it is Christ speaking to, it is God speaking to, it is Daniel speaking to. Um, having that grounding when you cut away makes it all believable. If it had been a lesser actor than Gregory Peck, this story is preposterous. And also, 
you watch, you watch the omen and go, these are things that can really happen to people. People die, people commit suicide, accidents happen. Um, but the, you put them all together and it becomes this chain of evidence that eventually leads up to this man having to make the worst choice in his life. So if he was, if, if you, if there was any cheats along the way, like, yeah, look at, look at that supernatural envy. It, it wouldn't have been so hard for him to make this choice. He's constantly in conflict with right. it's real or not. Right. It was, it was in, yes. But also he committed original sin. He committed the sin of, of, of the, the, the huge lie of presenting a foundling, someone else's child to his wife, for all the best intentions. But right. here, here's the deal. You loved him for that deceit, for that deception, and you knew he had it coming to him. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So um, one thing I love about, about The Omen is that you do jump into that original sin. You don't have a whole first act of setup, you know, seeing her and she's going to have the baby and she's talking to him and all this stuff. We come up on him having received word that the child has died, his wife doesn't know it yet, and he makes that choice. It's right away. I mean, you talk about coming in late into a movie. So was that uh, a conscious decision? Like, I'm just, I'm going to start here. Or ha had you thought about some setup prior, or you just knew that was the place to start? I hadn't done enough writing to have more than one thought. <laughs> there, there were no options. <laughs> that's where we start. That's straight ahead from here. Um, no, that was, I, I, I do know that for the hell that was going to rain down on him, I mm -hmm. needed him to have done something that we could all recognize as, uh, as a dark, dark deed. Because, you know, it, it, did, it did turn out to be that. I mean, we all roll the dice when we have kids and um, don't know what they're going to turn out to be. And we try to be, I try to be as good a person as I can so that I won't have any karmic debt when it comes to my children. But he chalked up a, you know, a huge karmic debt at that point. Now, you had small children at the time, right? Mm -hmm, How old mm -hmm. were they? At that time, 1976, uh, six, six, they were born in 68 and 69, so they were... Like, like seven and... Yeah, yeah. And like then, uh, how, much, how much did having small children impact the script? You have mentioned uh, an innocent villain that you thought that that was, <laughs> that was part of what really, really drove the script. I just wonder, were your kids... It, it, a play in your head as you were writing this? Definitely. They, yeah. both, they both showed signs, <laughs> worrisome signs. <laughs> you know, when you have kids, when they do something freaky, you think, I mean, I saw them in straight jackets instantly. <laughs> 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 no, I was working, I was working out some stuff. Um, Greg Peck, not incidentally, but something very few people know, this was an aberration in his career. Um, no one would have ever thought he would go for a part like this. Uh, actually, Dick Donner had an insight. Um, Greg's son had committed suicide, and Greg felt, um, listen, when you lose a child, you are unfortunately 
in, in, in the court in the court of self-blame practically for no matter what and you find yourself guilty <laughs> you're the judge the jury and when i met greg i knew i knew that i could see he was a man in pain but this ends up with a man acting out a murder on his own child sent you know with it and i thought this is just me thinking why did greg do this part why did he do this picture it was about a man tortured uh with his son and, and you know it was in in some way was this connected with what was in his psyche i don't know maybe i shouldn't say this no maybe. no i think i think it's been it's been said has it has it oh, okay good people people now know that if you if you dig really deep but i think you know whatever reason he did it you know it's an actor brings their own reality in right, right? Right. And yeah, when it comes to children, I mean, think about The Exorcist, right? What scared us? It wasn't the devil. It was that a, there was a devil in a little, again, an innocent child. Right, right. right? Holly Palance is still a friend of mine. She's played the uh, the nanny, the nurse in the beginning who said at the at the party, look, Damien, Damien, it's all for you. Oh, and then she God. hangs herself. And she said to this day, she walks down the street. She still looks very much the same, said, from behind, some stranger will say, look, Damien, it's all for you. Oh, my God. You blessed her and forced her. Yeah. Um, you, you, uh, I, I'm going to steal a quote from you. Mm -hmm. and I thought this was so cool. You said, the more internalized things are, the less obvious they are, the more active participants the audience becomes. So, so you're saying that, the more it's sort of inside, the more the audience is, is working at it, right? We're trying to interpret it. We're trying to analyze it. We're even filling in the blanks sometimes. Absolutely. Um, there was a, a, sh a real shift made with horror movies um, when the point of view, the point of view was always of the victim who didn't, who didn't know what was walking behind them. Mm -hmm. I've also observed that when a character cries for themselves, the audience stops crying. Yeah, yeah. Um, when a character self-pities, the audience stops self-pitying. They, not, not, not 100%, because sometimes people turn on the waterworks and they keep going. But I've actually watched audiences at a point where the character figures it out sitting back. Yes. It's no longer anything for them to figure out. But when horror movies started being through the eyes of the hunter, the killer, that was, a whole, that was a whole different deal. It was horrifying, but not in the same way. Not in the same way when you saw what the killer was about to do. Um, so I try to keep everything, I try to keep all victimization in, internalized. I've worked with Gary Oldman, and, uh, and we, we discussed that as being something very important. And when I did Lucas, I actually used my conversation with Gary. If one of the kids was needed a stage direction, I would explain. They were quite young. And I said, there's something about the camera that very few people know. I'll let you in on a secret. It reads your mind. I don't want you to do anything different. I just want you to listen to this. And I would tell them about what the character might be feeling or relating to. And so I said, now just do the same thing camera will read your mind and it does if i had tried to 
have them mimic some kind of acting gesture or attitude, or it would have been different. That the movie played, I was very, very happy with the way the kids performed in that movie because it felt very real. I didn't give any one of them a direction. I only whispered in their ears so the camera would see what they knew. So, um, yeah, I think once something is out there, the audience can relax. But as long as they don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And also, I also learned when you're doing scary things to do very tight shots. So the audience knows they can't see what's over there. They can't see what's in the next room. They can't see what's around the corner. They can't see what's right next to the camera. So um, it, it's all very simple stuff, probably pretty obvious. Um, but um, you, there, 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 there is a way of working this game if you want the audience to be scared. Well, it's interesting, too. If you say that you want tight shots, in a way, if you're on a character and you want tight shots, you better be sort of writing him emotionally so that the character so that the camera can get tight on that emotion yeah. so it's almost like the more if there is emotion at play that's going to be scarier because we're on the character but there are things behind him we can't right see. right and also what i like to do when i'm writing and i think not a lot of writers do it um very often it's what's not said mm-hmm. that is that is that the audience is making the audience involved and when you have a conversation that's just tracking point to point to point to point to point, what I like to do is pull out everything um, that I possibly can so that there is an assumption of what someone didn't say rather than hearing what they said. Um, it's just kind of, um, I, I also believe that an actor is to me the best arbiter of whether or not a line works. I just don't care if it's right for the story, the period, the this, the that. I'll figure out some, if an actor not comfortable with it, no, nah, don't do it, don't do it. Um, but at any rate, if, when I look at my scripts, I see that there's a difference in the way I write or what, I, what finally winds up on the page and most of the things that I read um, because of what's not said. No. So you've worked with some major actors. I mean, uh, you know, Tom Hanks, Sally Field, Melanie Griffith, Michael Douglas, um, Gary Oldman. Um, you said that the, the actor is sort of the, the, the best person for testing dialogue. Were there moments where you took their direction and, and, and lost something uh, in the pages or added something? Um. Everybody, everybody on a set when, yeah. when I direct uh-huh. um, is free to walk up and say, give me any idea they have. One of the things that most appeals to me about directing is enabling people to do their best work. I feel failed if somebody didn't get that opportunity, anybody on the set. Um, very much of what winds up in a movie that I do is invented by the actors. Yeah. Do you ever, it must be hard because you're, you're writing, you're directing, somebody's giving you a suggestion. I would imagine you have to make choices though. Sometimes it's. Oh, sure, for sure, for sure. But, but there's a, you know, getting studio notes mm-hmm. um, for most people is a nightmare. Um, not for me. I treat everyone 
as though the note is valid until I prove it's not. Because more often than not, a note that might look stupid is putting their finger on something. Mm -hmm. They just don't know how to articulate it. They just don't know exactly at what point what they're missing should have, should have been at. So at any rate, I take everyone's notes very seriously and, and, and love, love giving credit to people who came up with those things. Um, I love saying that was his idea. When somebody said, that's one of the greatest things, I know that's his idea. That somebody even, even gave me credit for inventing the slow clap that, that gradually builds. Well, of course, that's nonsense. Um, <laughs> invent any slow clap. Or there was a moment, there was a little uh, movie I did uh, with the Gary Ullman and Skeet Ulrich. It's called Nobody's Baby. It never got decent distribution, but it's really a sweet picture. Um, but there was a moment that everybody laughed for one of the characters. Uh, there was someone taking his picture in a hospital and he turned profile. So it instantly said he's had mug shots done. It, it just had to do with who the character was and what he was trying to conceal about himself. Oh. And um, at any rate, that, there are so many things that can happen with a movie um, that are just, you know, fortuitous accidents. Somebody comes up with an idea. And so often they don't want to tell the director what the idea is. Even if somebody doesn't look good in a green dress, please tell me. <laughs> I walk onto a set, unlike most directors, like a guy who needs help, which I do. The one thing, great difference between writing, which makes it harder than directing, there's nobody to say, uh-uh, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You'll pay for this down the line. When you're a writer, there's no one to tell you that. Until you're way down the line thinking, what have I missed? This sweat got boring. This is redundant. This is, you know, when you're directing, all these voices say, eh, eh, don't do it that way. So in a way, do, well, which process do you enjoy the most? Do you like directing more because you can get all those voices? Or do you ever find writing like, oh, finally, just me? Um initially i was so fulfilled as a writer um but i had little kids at home and i had dogs and cats and pets around me i could open the door to my office and have fun as life gets lonelier and those other rooms aren't filled with things and people i want to go to the party uh -huh. you know? and i really feel cheated if i write something and everybody goes off and has a party and i go back into my room so um yeah i, I do like i do like directing and then you get to run the party yes yeah, absolutely i'd be the life <laughs> of the party other than uh the omen what are your what's your favorite movie um that beyond that movie because i know that you actually enjoy the omen which makes me like it even more as i watch it um you have such a rich filmography. I cannot say I've seen everything I wish that right. I had, but why don't you give me some homework? What would you say? You should go up and watch this movie. Um, it's hard to say. They, they, all, they all hold something, different kinds of lessons for me and different moments of satisfaction. All in all, Lucas is my favorite movie. Uh, the one with Winona Ryder and Charlie Sheen and Corey Haim. Um, it was very autobiographical. And, um, and it came out exactly, exactly the way I imagined it. 
Oh, that's great. So I feel I feel really great, really great about that picture. Is it is it true that was Winona Ryder's debut? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you yeah. go. Casting director, Mary Gale Arts founder in Petaluma, California. Um, she was 13. Her name was Winona Horowitz. Um, and she asked me at some point toward the end, she thought she was going to have a career at this. What did I think of the name Winona October? <laughs> so I think you can do better than that. <laughs> That's great. That is great. What, what is, what's, what are you excited about right now? What are you creating? What are, what's ahead? Well, um, I'm doing a deep dive into environmental things. Um, most of what I'm working on has environmental sub-themes. I was very impressed with um, Get Out, mm -hmm. uh, Jordan Peele's movie, because it was disguised as a little horror movie, but it was about a big societal issue. So I'm kind of doing that with... Um, um, I've got a little movie that makes you think you're about to see a werewolf movie, but it's very environmental. Interesting. Um, and I've got a big, big project that probably that I don't want to talk about, but it's it's big and it's um, motion capture or animated, and um, I don't want to give it away. But I'm I'm really thrilled that there's. It looks like I'm going to get that made. Well, um, before it comes out, would, would you consider yeah. and promoting it and talking about it? Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. This was, this was such a treat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, where, you know, I, I always ask my guests to, you know, point people toward what they want people to watch or pay for. So um, I know that The Omen just came out, I think, with a, a re-release um, maybe last year or something like that. I don't know. Do you like uh, like when? Oh, there was there was that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> there was that the, the, the whatever Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something or other package. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 it's, and it is <laughs> people who who can speak Portuguese and Serbian and Polish and it's it's being picked up and published all over the world for some strange reason. It's like half a century ago. Um, Holly Palance just did the audiobook. Um, oh, yes, wait, we skipped over a whole thing. So I, I, I'll just say that right before The Omen came out in theaters, you decided to spend five weeks writing the novel of it. So even after you'd written the screenplay and it had been produced, you went and wrote the novel. People, it came out two weeks before the movie debuted, right? And people were already so excited about the novel. And so we've got novels of The Exorcist and, and Rosemary's Baby and The Omen. And so even the novel has kind of found its way as in, into the canon. Right? Abs absolutely. And it's yeah. packaged along with Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist in a lot of different languages. And I'm, I'm not being falsely modest, but it doesn't hold a candle to those things. Not the book, not the book. That was the first thing I wrote. I went to the set and saw the decapitation scene. 
And nothing like that had ever been. This is before CGI, before gore really happened, gory things. And I saw the de decapitation thing happen. I saw the dailies. I thought this movie could be a hit. And um, the only novelization that I knew of was Eric Siegel's Love Story. That was written after Love Story. It was a huge success. I was very much into trying to make a living at all this. I thought, I'm going to go home and write that novel. And I did, and I beat the movie to the box office. It was a bestseller and not a good book. <laughs> but, but people just, you know, have a hunger for that sort of thing. Talk about working cross-platform, you know? Yeah, abs absolutely. They you absolutely were doing that in the 70s, yeah. Cross-pollinated each other. Uh, the studio, the people involved with the movie really felt blindsided that I had had the rights to do that, and they got no part of it. Ha ha. Ah. And so that was that created some some heat for me, but no, I was really really thrilled to do that. That was fun. So read, so go get that book. Watch <laughs> The Omen. Watch all of David's movies, and keep an eye out for more. Keep um, an eye out for more. Do you uh, are you on social media? Yes, you are. I love social media. Really? So where can people find Facebook. you and things like that? And Facebook? Just, just Facebook. Okay. As a matter of fact, I tell, as a matter of fact one of my recent entrants is the Winona Horowitz, Winona October thing. Oh, I just yeah. remember, I found an old picture of her and I, and I put it on Facebook. I love and, Facebook. And it's right under your name, right? David? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you again, David. Oh, I want to tell everybody, remind them, uh, go to onthepage.tv. Um, right now I'm in the middle of the rewrite online class. It's going very, very well. And um, the writing TV class will be happening in July. So you can start signing up for that. Um, and also I'm going to be throwing in a little goodie um, that I think is going to be called <laughs> Craft Cocktail Hour. What do you think about that? <laughs> can you get can you get the word tequila in there? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna work at it. I'm I'm worried that this is my Winona October, so I'm, I'm working at it. But yeah, so so guys, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. Go to onthepage.tv and you'll see everything that's happening. Thank you again to David Seltzer, and thanks to all of you for listening. Have a good writing week. 